what if there were a fountain of youth pill that could add decades to your life? Would you take it? Unlocking the Fountain is a podcast about the mysteries of aging and the scientific quest to slow, stop, or even reverse it. When do you think we're going to have the first 150-year-old? I think that person's already alive. Unlocking the Fountain. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. At a certain point in time, Linda Evangelista was one of the most recognizable people on the planet. Her face was on all the magazines. Women all around the world chopped their hair off because she did. But get this, Linda didn't really think of herself as a great beauty at that time. We'll also talk about the sheer artistry of fashion photography in the 80s and 90s pre-Photoshop era, where if you wanted a picture of a model kissing a chimp wearing a shoe on her head, you actually had to get a model to kiss a chimp while wearing a shoe, which Linda really did. Plus, it's Halloween. You'll hear from Selena Spooky Boo, pretty sure that's her real name, about her new Audible series, Night Frights. I'm Talia Schlanger, sitting in for Tom Power. You're listening to Q. When it comes to the world of fashion, there are a few key players. The designer, of course, the fashion editor, for sure, the stylist, makeup artist, photographer. But then there's the model at the center of it all. Whether walking down a runway or posing for an editorial shoot, it all comes down to the model to take the designer's vision and bring it to life in the world. And in some cases, models do a whole lot more than that. They can define culture itself. If you were around in the late 1980s and early 1990s, maybe you remember the era of the supermodel and a group of women who shaped not just fashion, but popular culture. I'm talking about Naomi Campbell, Christy Turlington, Cindy Crawford, and Linda Evangelista. Canadian Linda Evangelista. Over the course of her career as a model, Linda appeared on over 700 magazine covers. She did the catwalk at every major fashion week around the world. She was amused to top-tier designers and photographed by the most talented and sought-after photographers. At the height of her fame, Linda was one of the most famous women on the planet. There's a new book that documents her incredible career, the many characters she played on the pages of those glossy magazines, and her long-standing collaboration with the American photographer Stephen Mizell. It's called Linda Evangelista, photographed by Stephen Mizell. Linda is also one of the stars of the new Apple TV Plus series, The Supermodels, which follows her story from St. Catharines, Ontario, all the way to supersonic fame. I spoke to Linda Evangelista when she was in Manhattan, New York, just before making a trip to Toronto. Linda, welcome to Q. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. And we're talking just before your trip to Toronto to promote your new book. Uh, what's it like coming home to Canada? Oh, well, it's, it's home. Home sweet home. I was just there for Thanksgiving with my son. Mm-hmm. Um, it's... It's where I'm the most comfortable. Oh, wow. Uh, you grew up in St. Catharines, Ontario. Um, I did. And I still consider it my home, even though um, I've lived uh, abroad uh, since I was almost 19 years old. 
and I still consider it home. Mm. I want to dig back to to that time when you were a kid growing up. You said that you were obsessed with fashion magazines. Uh, What did it give you as a kid to look at fashion magazines? Dreams. Hmm. It was my way of dreaming, and it was an escape. And uh, when I started working, uh, you know, at minimum wage in a convenience store, I would uh, buy a couple of those magazines each month, and I would tear out the photos and put them up on my bedroom wall. And now when I'm signing books, I get stories from people saying that they tore out my photos and put them up on their bedroom walls and that I help them to dream. And it's, I think, the biggest compliments I've ever received in my life because that, you know, it was exactly what I did. That must mean a whole lot. Could you see yourself back then when you were a kid looking up at those magazines on the walls and those models? Could you see yourself as one of them at that time? Uh, No. No, I didn't dream that high. I dreamt of being a model. I didn't. I wasn't. No, I didn't think I would make it that far. I don't don't know. I just wanted to work. Just... Mm. um, it was fairy tale. Of course, my dream was to appear on a cover of Vogue, but I never thought that would happen. Hmm. Why did you want to become a model specifically? Like of all the of all the different roles that you could have imagined taking in the fashion industry of of escape for your love of clothes. Why why being a model specifically? It it was for the love of fashion, hmm. and um, I have to say when I when I hear. Um, young people say that they want to be famous uh, and that their motive and for doing what they're choosing to do is to be famous, that disturbs me. I, I didn't become a model to become famous. I became a model. I wanted to be very successful, of course, at what I did, but it wasn't to be famous. And in fact, I didn't know the models' names back then that I was looking at on my walls because they only printed the name of the person on the cover inside the magazine. They never told us who the other models were. And we didn't have the internet, so there was no way of searching that. I think you were a big part of the reason why we know models' names, like you and the the other supermodels that I mentioned in the introduction. That was like part of a of a culture shift where there the the people that we're seeing in magazines are not um, human coat hangers or or mannequins. They're they're people who have personalities that we've fallen in love with. Oh, I. Yeah, I guess you're right. Do you think so? Uh, yeah, yeah, I do, actually. <laughs> I didn't think of it that way, but yes. <laughs> yes, so, we became known yeah. you know, by our first names. Exactly, exactly. So you're 16 years old, you enter the Miss Teen Niagara pageant, uh, and you get scouted by an agent from Elite Model Management, and, and then you move to New York. What stands out in your memory from that time of being such a young person in New York working? Well, there was there was a long period of time, perhaps two years or between one and two years before I actually called the scout. Um, I finished high school and it was then I had finished early 
my mother said, why don't you give modeling a try again after uh, my failed trip to Japan when I was younger? Mm-hmm. And um, that I did. I did. So that's when we called up the scout and then he took some pictures of me and sent them to my agency in New York and they invited me to New York to meet me. Why do you think your mom believed in your ability to be a model at that time? I think she saw how obsessed I was with it and how passionate I was with it. And I was very tall. Um, Well, you know, I was 5'8 when I was 13. So, um, you know, and I guess people kept mentioning to my mother, oh, she's so tall and um, she's pretty. Maybe, you know, why doesn't she model? And um, I never thought when I initially started collecting those pictures and putting them up on my bedroom wall that I qualified. What was New York like when you first moved there? Um, it was uh, a little intimidating. Uh, I was taught to use the subway. Um, and I stayed at a model's apartment where there were four girls to a bedroom, two sets of bunks, mm. um, eight girls to each apartment. Um, and kind of on my own, I was given my appointments and I left in the morning and I was doing my, uh, go to meet photographers, magazines, photographers who might want to do tests with me to build up my portfolio. And so I would have about eight appointments a day and I would take the subway and come home have dinner and start again the next day (laughs) you're hustling hustling I sure was yeah and I mean it paid off after New York comes Paris and you're booking these jobs with some of the biggest magazines and fashion designers in the world and then I want to talk about a really big decision that you made a life-changing decision that you made in 1988 where you cut your hair short Oh, yes. Um, So I was already successful. I was already on um, international Vogue covers and doing all different magazines and working with all the best photographers. Mm -hmm. So I I wore a wig for a photo shoot one day and Julien Deese, the hairdresser, uh, had, you know, put this very short wig on me and the photographer Peter Lindbergh fell in love with me in that wig and he had always seen me quite androgynous and he thought I should cut my hair and then him and Anna Winter thought I should cut my hair <laughs> and he even said I don't think we can I don't see how much more we could do with you with long hair which is ridiculous because you know, Cindy Crawford has had long hair her entire career. Right. Nobody told her she had to cut her hair. But I thought about it and thought about it, and I finally did it. And it didn't, it wasn't initially uh, received very well. And I went on an American Vogue shooting to Greece, 
with Peter and um, I did a photo shoot with him there. And I then went off to Milan for the fashion shows and I had 20 booked and 16 canceled me because wow. of my haircut. So I thought, whoa, <laughs> I blew it. Here. Whoops. Yeah. I called my friend Stephen Mizell that evening and I told him what happened and I was in tears, just crushed. I said, they don't. They don't like it. And he said, well, I want to see it. Let's get you here. And him and Franco Sozzani from Italian Vogue put me on the Concord the next day. And I went to New York and I shot Italian Vogue cover. And between the two of them, I had many Vogue covers within a, a couple of months and spreads in magazines. And then it took off. People needed to understand it, I guess. Yeah. And then people coveted it. Like it was an iconic haircut. And I guess I'm just so struck by, I, I watched uh, the series, The Supermodels, where you you tell your story. And, and in the telling of it, it comes out that your mom told you not to do it because you would be the only one with short hair. And I think that was kind of a profound moment I thought in the supermodels because being the only one of something is a scary thing to do and then it yes. can become a defining thing yes and when I was younger I always did what my mother told me not to do there you go <laughs> I wish I sure wish I would have listened to her most of the time not in the case of the hair but the other times I should have listened um you mentioned your collaborator, Stephen Mizell, when we were talking about your hair just a moment ago, and I'm looking at this stunning collaboration uh, book that's come out of, of photographs that he's taken of you throughout your career. And there's this foreword that gives us a lot of insight about your relationship and the, the amazing chemistry that you share together. And in that foreword, you actually say that you don't consider yourself to be a great beauty. Um, I could have dropped the giant book on my foot at that point re reading it. I mean, so many of us would find that surprising to hear. But what do you feel that you that you brought to to these shoots if it wasn't um, being a great beauty, as you put it? Well, I um, I certainly know my angles and I know uh, that's all something that I learned. But I I get the whole composition of the photo. I get uh, what we're trying to achieve. And I like to collaborate. And um, it just, uh, it, I just collaborate very, very well with Stephen. And um, I know that when I work with different photographers and I've been working a lot recently uh they they know I know sort of what I'm doing but I'm so open to help and I love direction because sometimes they I remember days they would just put you on the set and say okay go like you're supposed to control the whole thing mm -hmm. and then it feels very lonely um I just love collaborating. I love it. So back then, when you were working together, there was no internet, no digital software, no post-production. What was that like to achieve a vision on set with only the things that you had on set? It was work, but it was fun. We had Polaroids 
to determine if we were going in the right direction and we could see the lighting, we could see what the outfit looked like. So if the lighting needed to be improved, it would be moved around or reflectors were used or the photographer would change his aperture and stops. And and then, you know, the hairdressers could see what they were doing or um, if it was movement, you know, we had to um, guess at what we were getting. But we sort of knew by the Polaroid and... All the retouching, I, I say this, the retouching was done before we took the photo. So um, things were pinned on you and um, just everything, what you saw is what you got. And now today they just don't care. You just walk onto the set and doesn't matter what it looks like because they fix it all later in post-production. So all those photos in my book, I'm going to say most of them, most of them were done and weren't retouched. So that lighting is incredible in there. And the makeup's incredible. And the reflect, whoever's holding the reflector is doing a great job. And I mean, it's real teamwork, but um, there was just more thought that went into it before, before we shot it. And now most of the thought is afterwards, not necessarily with Steven. He still sets it up so that it's pretty darn perfect. And he barely touches photos now, but other photographers really, really rely on retouching. What you're doing in some of these is amazing. I'm thinking of a photo of you kissing a chimpanzee with a shoe on your head, and you're really kissing a chimpanzee, and there's really a shoe on your head. Well, yes. The shoe's there because we're shooting fashion. That was for Barney's, (laughs) Barney's New York. And the chimpanzee, I mean, I had to make a picture with her, so we tried all different things. And she was a toddler. No, she was more of a teen, I think. Well, she was still in diapers. (laughs) But, um, you know, and she kept looking at the ceiling because there it, there were exposed pipes up there. And she wanted those pipes because she wanted to swing. She did not want to be sitting uh, with me doing a photo. And I put a candy in my mouth and that's how I got her attention. And she's going after the candy very gently. She got very excited over the candy. <laughs> That's very brave. Like your face is your moneymaker and you have a candy in your mouth and you're inviting a chimpanzee. Oh, to no, sh- she's, har- she's harmless. She's harmless. She was adorable. She was snuggly and everything, but she wanted to swing. <laughs> it's an amazing photo. It's an amazing photo. Uh, on the on the playful side of things, in 1990, okay, you, along with four other supermodels, starred in this iconic music video for George Michael for the song Freedom 90. just taking me back to to the days and weeks after that music video came out like did it feel like something changed for you in your life at that time 
Yeah, I mean, I don't remember a lot except for instead of, oh, you're that, you're Linda. Oh, you're on the cover of whatever magazine. I would get, oh, you're in the Freedom video. <laughs> And it became all about that video. It sort of, uh, it. I was able to reach. We were able to reach a whole different audience mm -hmm. than um, than previously because it was, you know, MTV VH1 generation. Uh, so yeah, it it put us at another level. There was a larger audience suddenly. Yeah, you're at that point by the early 90s, you're one of the most famous women on earth, one of the most recognizable people. And I want to know about the pressure, the specific pressure of that um, becoming famous in part for how you look like what what did that do to you at that time to have one of the most iconic faces in the world? I didn't feel any personal pressure. There was in... Um, 93 a movement that came along where they did try to say the press did try to say that it was the end of the supermodel era and we had like incredible Kate Moss and we had Amber Valletta and we had Shalom Harlow another Canadian and they this they were trying to bring in this new era and dispose of us but um we managed to hang around through that whole grunge era. Um, I worked, I worked a lot. I mean, I even had September '93 Vogue cover. So they did try and do away with us, but we managed to hang on. <laughs> the supermodels persevered. We did. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Q. I'm Talia Schlanger, sitting in for Tom Power. Coming up, more of my conversation with supermodel Linda Evangelista. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl. Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. I'm Talia Schlanger, sitting in for Tom Power here on Q. You're listening to my interview with Canadian supermodel Linda Evangelista. She's looking back on her career through a new book, Linda Evangelista, photographed by Stephen Mizell. There are stunning photographs in this book, but behind all the gloss and the glamour, is a woman who has been through a whole lot. In part two of our conversation, you'll hear Linda talk about her experience with breast cancer, a beauty treatment that went wrong, sending her into hiding, and how an industry that's known for its fascination, obsession, I would say, with youth and perfection, was there for her when she needed them. 
even after she retired and spent several years in and out of the spotlight. Well, in 98, I fell madly in love and was living in the south of France. And I really liked it. I didn't want to leave. And so I did say I, I did stop working. And I did believe I said I was retired. But um, I ended up like, going through a sad period of my life. I lost a child uh, when I was six months pregnant and my relationship didn't survive. And uh, I came back to work. You know, I've only figured out recently, uh, as I've been talking about this book, that work isn't, I'm so blessed and I'm so fortunate. Um, my work is something that I absolutely love, and it's actually an escape from my own life. I've had, you know, um, lung issues and so many surgeries throughout my career that I never spoke about. And um, and then now I've most recently had the breast cancer, and going to work is an escape from all of that. And I forget about all of that. And I get to do what that little girl in St. Catherine's always dreamt of doing, you know? And so I do walk away occasionally. And then when I return, it's because I'm just full of joy to be back. Yeah. You mentioned many of the surgeries that you've, that you've been through. You have talked about having had a double mastectomy, um, and I've heard you say that to you, scars are trophies. Can you oh, yes. can you tell me more about that? Well, they are just proof of like your triumph that um, you're alive, first of all, or you survived whatever uh, health issue was thrown at you. And if so, if they had to open up my chest. Uh, for my lungs and remove a rib and if I have that scar it's like proof to me that you know I won we uh we started this conversation by talking about you when you were a little kid and pouring over the the pages of fashion magazines and obsessed with this world that seems so far away you've been through it I think it's safe to say that you conquered it um where are you at with it right now? Like, how do you how do you feel when you reflect back on on your career and all the images that that we see, especially in this this new book that's come out? Oh, I'm proud of it, and I'm celebrating. I'm celebrating the past work that I've done. I'm in celebration mode about my life. I'm. Um, looking forward to the future. I'm doing photo shoots um, all the time. It's, I, I can't believe that I am. Yeah, why? Um, what's that like? Because you took some time away from the public eye for a while and, and now you're back in it. So what is it? What, what's that like? Well, so I just didn't want to work or nobody knew what my status was because I just disappeared. And it was because I really didn't feel comfortable in my own skin. And I felt ashamed and embarrassed because I did a cosmetic procedure that um, had 
um, some horrible consequences too. And I just didn't want to be seen. And then when I finally came out, because I didn't want to live like that any longer, and I came out and said the truth, what was going on, there was one person, uh, Kim Jones, designer of like Dior and Fendi, and um, I had never met him, but he wrote me a letter, and it was the most beautiful letter, and he said, I, I still think you're beautiful, and I want to work with you. And he proposed me a Fendi campaign, and... I couldn't believe it. And I had a Zoom meeting with him and he was so enthusiastic and supportive and I got courageous and I said, okay, I'll do it. And from that, um, my friend who didn't know what was going on with me, but Edward Enenful, the editor-in-chief of British Vogue, kept asking me while he was at Vogue to do a cover for him. And I never said yes. And I finally said, okay, the time's now, let's do it. So I did them back to back, Fendi on a Monday and Vogue on a Tuesday. And just from that, there was this incredible reaction from the whole industry that they they wanted to work with me and were willing to work with me as I was. And they weren't holding anything against me. They never held my age against me. Um, then I got cancer. So I had to disappear for a little bit again to go through the chemo and radiation and grow my hair back a bit. Um, but yeah, my industry is so supportive that I, I feel like, Sometimes I feel like damaged goods, but they look past that and they want to celebrate me um, just as much as I now want to celebrate me and understand that I should be celebrating me. Just as we close out here, Linda, what, what does that tell you about what beauty actually is? Yeah, I'm still confused (laughs) how to answer that. I'm sorry, I'm laughing. Um, It's obviously, you know, not necessarily only about aesthetics or aesthetically what you look like physically. that there's beauty in everyone, even me, who's no longer a perfect sample size, who's, you know, I no longer look 22, nor do I want to, but um, I guess they're finding beauty in someone who's 58 and um, life happened. <laughs> and uh, you can see that life happened on her and they're finding it acceptable not just acceptable but worthy of worthy of i guess worthy sure. of documenting and showing to others and and i hope that 
that gives you faith in your own your own beauty. I I yes, I've come a long way in the last uh, couple of years, and cancer certainly puts a whole different perspective on things. Surviving cancer puts a whole new perspective on things. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. It's, a, it's an honor to talk to you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Linda Evangelista, photographed by Stephen Mizell, is out now. You can also catch the documentary series The Supermodels on Apple TV+. Linda Evangelista joined me from Manhattan, New York. Selena Myers is an entrepreneur, writer, and TikTok star, better known as Selena Spooky Boo. Back in 2015, Selena started, I laughed a laugh at myself in the way that I just said Spooky Boo. I'm sure that that's exactly what she intended. Let's do that again, Selena Spooky Boo. Back in 2015, uh, Selena started a podcast called The Haunted Estate all about true paranormal stories. But things really took off for Selena when she started sharing videos on TikTok in 2019 and quickly found out that her mix of sleepwalking stories, spooky tales, and dad jokes attracted a big audience. And I mean a big one. Selena Spooky Boo has over 27 million followers on TikTok. To talk about her new Audible series called Spooky Boo's Night Frights and to set up a clip for us on this All Hallows Eve, Selena Spooky Boo joined Tom Power from Interkip, Ontario. Selena, welcome to the show. How are you? Hi, thank you very much. I'm excited to be here on the best day of the whole year. Can you, can you answer me a question before we start talking about Halloween? Of course. Where's Interkip, Ontario? So it is literally in the middle of nowhere. I'm actually even outside of Interkip. Interkip is a town of 2,000 people, but I'm, I would say I'm pretty close to Kitchener. I feel like a lot of people know Kitchener and Cambridge. So I'm, I'm about 20 minutes out from there. Is, is Interkip a spooky place? Oh, it has a lot of history. I literally live on 50 acres of woods. So it's like I live in my very own haunted book. Now that's the truth. (laughs) You grew up in, in Woodstock, Ontario, right? And my understanding is you grew up in a haunted house? Yes. So the house that I grew up in was actually built over where the very first homestead was built in Woodstock. And a lot of the people who passed away there died of scarlet fever and they still walk the halls to this day. Did you have any experience with that growing up? Oh, absolutely. I think that's kind of what opened me up to the paranormal was there was a little girl and I would talk about her all the time. And my mom thought she was an imaginary friend. But one time my mom caught her, like saw her, drew a picture of her and went to public records. And she was actually able to pull up a photo of the little girl. No. Yep. She died in the 1800s. No. She did. She died in the 1800s of scarlet fever. She was six years old and her name was Mary Agnes Nellis. Hold on. So you, you used to see her in the house? I thought she was real. Like, I fully thought there was this girl that was just always in my house. Oh, God, that's terrifying. Oh, my I God. Know. So hold on. So, you're, so when your mom finds out that this was a person who had, who had died and had passed away and you had been seeing a ghost this whole time, what went through your mind? Well, you know what? It wasn't even what, what went through our mind. She was just like, okay, let's find her grave and take her flowers. So, you know, I lived there for 18 years and I don't think my parents are really that much believers when they moved in there, but they left believers and that is that is for real. Can I tell you something about me, Selena? I, yes, I don't like horror movies. I won't go to haunted- Why? I, 
I don't. I, I hey, let me tell you this. I don't know why you like it. Can you? It makes me feel alive. I feel alive. I feel like I'm. I feel the adrenaline. I'm like, okay, we're still kicking. Hold on, tell me more about that. Like, what what do you like about that feeling of being scared about about being feeling haunted? I think what I actually enjoy the most is knowing that something's going to come after life. Because I feel like that's the one question nobody has an answer to. It's like, what comes next? Like, there's people who have, like, near-death experiences. But from the things that, like, I've seen and I've I've experienced, I'm like, there's definitely something after whatever we're doing here. Whatever our purpose is here, it's leading into something else. When it comes to, like, horror movies and, and ghost stuff like that. I just like it because it's such a shakeup from what we're doing in our daily, like, mundane lives. It's like, oh, that's not supposed to happen. I never heard an explanation about loving ghosts and ghost stories like that before, that it gives you some kind of confirmation. If you see someone who is dead in, in, in real life in front of you, it gives you some sort of, like, existential comfort, like a confirmation. It, it is, and it's so weird. And I think it's interesting that so many of the ghosts we see are, like, very olden days and I can't wait for like a hundred years from now when everyone sees us just like millennials <laughs> running around with our flip phones. I don't know. I don't really like the feeling because I think I like the feeling of being, I think when I watch entertainment, I want to feel like comforted. I want to laugh. I want to smile, you know? Yes. Well, weirdly, the ghost ones, a lot of the time they end pretty nice. So I like to smile. That's a lot of my stories. I like to turn them around. So at the end of them, you're like, oh, that's kind of warm or gross. It's really worked out for you. You started posting videos on TikTok in 2019. You have 27 and a half million followers on TikTok right now. I remember seeing your, uh, when, when we when we booked you to come on the show, I was looking at your TikTok and I was like, oh yeah, I, rem- I remember her. I remember seeing the videos of you sleepwalking that went yeah. viral. Can you tell me a little bit about those videos and why you think they went so viral? They took over the world and it it blew my mind. I didn't expect it. It's something that I grew up with and I had always experienced. And I feel like the reason why it resonated so well is everybody knows someone who sleptwalk, heard somebody sleep talk or did it themselves. And it's always a thing like you never think to pull out your phone. You never think to do these kind of things. So it's like they get to relive like, you know, that fun, you know, childhood sleepover that they, they remember. But it must have been overwhelming to you to have that kind of success through these videos. Yeah, I didn't I didn't expect that. And I remember one of the times I first posted one, it had been two hours. And in two hours, it had reached 30 million views. And that had absolutely blown my mind because the first time I posted, I was in a hotel and it was more of a recap of what had happened. And then once I saw how did how well the recap did, I'm like, you know what, let's set up some cameras. We have some already and let's see what happens. But I just again, like you said, I did not expect it to just catapult. In a moment, we're going to play a clip from your new series called Spooky Boo's Night Frights. There are five spooky stories in this series. Where do these stories come from? So I just, I love horror and I wanted to write five stories that felt kind of really classic to the themes of Halloween. Um, We put them together and the cool thing was, is we got to make it like a movie for your ears. So it's not like an audio book. It's like an audio experience. And that's something I've always wanted to do. But they just, they came from those uh, crusty little cracks of my brain where all the scary things hide. We're going to hear a clip from the new series. It's from Chapter 4, The Paradox. Can you tell me a little bit about this episode? Like, What do we have to know before we hear the clip? The paradox has to do with maybe a furry, mythical creature that we all love. Um, So her parents died 10 years ago. They were famous taxidermists. She has the gift. So she continues to be a famous taxidermist. 
but she hadn't really found her uh, pack, if I could say. So in the story, she finds her pack. She does some weird stuff. But at the end, I think it turns out to be a pretty magical story. I'm excited to hear it. Uh, Selena, thanks for being here. Absolutely. Thank you for taking the time to speak to me. What are your Halloween plans for tonight? Ooh. Um, I'm going to get some popcorn. I'm going to get some snacks and I'm going to tuck in and watch a horror movie. No way. Not me. I'm going to watch like super bad and laugh. No, come on over. Come on over. Let's watch something scary. <laughs> no, I don't want to do it. It's too scary. Selena Spooky Boo <laughs> from her new Audible series, Spooky Boo's Night Frights. This is a clip from Chapter 4, The Paradox. It was nearly 2 a.m. when she hit something hard. It took another hour to clear the somewhat loose dirt from around the edges so the top of the coffin would open easily. Allison pulled a flashlight from her back pocket and illuminated her father's corpse. Moving the light from the feet and upwards towards his face, she paused at his chest. In her fatigued state, she thought she saw small, shallow breaths. Daddy? Allison whispered, but of course there was no response. She placed a foot on either side of the body and tried to lift, but he barely moved. She cursed loudly. She didn't want to do this, but she knew it was what he wanted. Over her shoulder, she caught sight of her pickup truck, and she knew what she had to do next. Within a minute, she was back in the hole, tying a tow rope around her father's body. She hopped in the driver's seat and eased the truck forward. It was difficult to watch his body rise this way, to see his features appear slowly, only to face plant in the wet soil. Allison jumped out and unhooked his body. Once she had dragged him into the barn, she got to work. It was going to be a long process. Okay, that's why I love radio and audio so much. It's almost creepier just to hear that stuff with the sound effects and picture it in your mind than it is to see. Uh, anyway, that was Selena Myers, also known as Selena Spooky Boo, with a little clip from her new five-episode audio series called Spooky Boo's Night Frights. It's available on audible.ca for free until November 3rd. Selena Spooky Boo talked to Tom Power from Interkip, Ontario. And that's it for the month of October. And that's it for Q uh, today. Coming up tomorrow on the show, Diablo Cody. That name, man, she was 29 years old when she won an Oscar for her very first screenplay. You might remember the film Juno. It catapulted her into celebrity status as a Hollywood screenwriter. She bonded quickly with Canadian songwriter Alanis Morissette, who also saw early success with her global smash hit album, Jagged Little Pill. Diablo Cody will talk about adapting that album for a stage musical and how the music of Alanis Morissette has soundtracked her own life. I'm Talia Schlanger, sitting in for Tom Power, who will be back with you tomorrow, and I'll see you next time. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.